Hi, and welcome to Conversations with Scientists. I'm Vivian Marks. This podcast is about space, space in biology, actually. Talking about the role of space and spatial analysis in biology is a chat about food, about smoothies, fruit salads, and fruit tarts. Here's Dr. Hongkui Zeng and Dr. Basilka Tasik from the Allen Institute for Brain Science. Fruit salad and smoothie, yeah. And then fruit tart is spatial transcriptomics. Smoothie, <laughs> balkar, and seek. Okay, you know, passe. Together, yeah. Then you have a, a fruit salad. You have dissociated all the cells. You, you're profiling them, but you have lost where their context. You have a context based on the piece of tissue that you dissected. And then there is the fruit tart. You know exactly where each piece of fruit is and what is the relationship of each piece of fruit to the other. Okay, so spatial analysis in genomics is understanding a fruit tart, knowing which genes are expressed where and what the relationship is of the genes to one another. The two scientists will talk more about this shortly. That's Dr. Basilka Tasik. She directs molecular genetics, and her research is, for example, on cell types in the mouse brain. And Dr. Hong Kui Zeng, who is director of the Allen Institute for Brain Science. Before they explain more about this science, here they are kindly teaching me how to pronounce their names. And as ever, I will try to do this right and likely fail. I'm Bosilka Kasik. Bosilka Kasik. Okay, got it? Hongkui Zen. Zen. Oh, so you don't pronounce the G at all, just Zen. Well, Zen, yeah, it's Z-E-N-G. Yeah, Zen. Yeah, yeah, but a little bit. But the G is very, almost not there. Yeah. Ah, Okay. Ah, very good. But I say zeng. <laughs> yeah, how would you how would you pronounce it if you if you emphasize the G? I say zeng. So I think G you hear much more, but it's not the correct way. Zeng. I mean, I've given you my Americanized way of saying my name. There's no way. <laughs> I see. Yeah. Well, I'm gonna I'm going to do it wrong anyway. Uh, but at Don't least uh, at least for me. Yeah. Don't worry. Uh, okay. Next, before we get back to their thoughts and research just a bit about this podcast series. In my reporting, I speak with scientists around the world, and this podcast is a way to share more of what I find out. This podcast takes you into the science, and it's about the people doing the science. You can find some of my work, for example, in nature journals that are part of the nature portfolio. That's where you'll find studies by working scientists, and those are about the latest aspects of their research. And a number of these journals offer science journalism. These are pieces by science journalists like me. This podcast episode about space and biology harkens back to interviews I did months ago. Back then, I asked scientists about their work and their thoughts about spatially resolved transcriptomics, which is a nature methods method of the year. In my slow pokey DIY podcast production, this is episode two in a series about this field of study. Spatially resolved transcriptomics helps with studying the brain, which is the giant puzzle that Hong Kui Zhang and Bosilka Tasik work on. Among their daily puzzles is how many different cell types are there in the brains of mammals such as mice, primates, or humans? There are lots of them. And scientists want to be more precise than just saying there are lots of cell types, of course. They want to know which ones there are and where they are. In the brain, another puzzle is where are cell types when? 
Cells are born and then often move to other areas of the brain where they will tend to all sorts of tasks. It takes a number of techniques to address these questions, including spatial techniques. The U.S. National Institutes of Health, NIH, has many research projects. One of them is the BRAIN Initiative, NIH's Brain Research Through Advancing Innovative Neurotechnologies Initiative. Part of that is the NIH Brain Initiative Cell Census Network, BICCN. One big BICCN project is to build a high-quality atlas of cell types in the entire mouse brain. Many labs are working together to produce human, mouse, and non-human primate atlases. These are intended as references for labs around the world. The scientists use imaging, electrophysiology, and molecular genetic analyses, including analysis of gene expression, which is transcriptomics. BICCN Phase 1 is underway, and Phase 2 is getting underway. The project has started with the mouse brain and is moving toward an atlas of the non-human primate brain and the human brain. One big challenge in this venture is distinguishing cell types. Cells may look very different, but they might also be quite similar to one another in their appearance. Here is Hong Kuizeng talking about BICCN. We are currently in phase one, yeah, BICCN phase one, building this uh, brain-wide reference cell type atlas. So we're talking about. So the, uh, yeah, so we are doing quite well. We expect to complete this phase one in the next two years. And, um, and then phase two, yeah, is starting. BICCN phase two is what you heard about from uh, SFN. And there are several major themes for phase two um, that were already announced uh, by NIH. And, uh, you know, the, the three major themes are building cell type targeting tools, um, uh, moving into the study uh, of primate brains, uh, including human brain, uh, cataloging cell types in the human brain, and, and then finally studying the connections, the connectomics of, of the brain. So those are like three major new directions in phase two, and actually Basoka is very actively involved in, in one of those a new initiative, which is building cell type targeting tools. Yeah. yeah, you want to define a cell type first, but then you want to be able to access it for experimental examination, perturbation. You want to form causality connections between a cell type and, let's say, a specific behavior. So in order to do that, you need to build usually a genetic tool that is based on genes that are expressed in that cell type or maybe regulatory elements, enhancers that are active in that cell type. You can, um, you can create a transgenic mouse or a viral tool that will then deliver a particular transgene, a particular perturbing or labeling gene to that cell. And then you can visualize that cell, monitor it, maybe monitor its activity or perturb it and ask for phenotypes, effects, at the level of that cell, at the level of the circuit, at the level of the whole organism. And both Hongkui and I, we, are, we have a, just accidentally sort of independent histories on building genetic tools, and then at the Allen, we sort of <laughs> merged our forces. But uh, both of us worked on building genetic tools, um, and then here we work together on, uh, again, expanding and building new genetic tools. But for me, this is something that I felt was always essential. Um, you can define cell types. You can define exactly where they are in the tissue. But you need to do something about them. 
Right. You need to visualize them, but not only visualize them, you need to perturb them. And then you need to observe the effect that perturbation has on the organism. That's how you build causality. Atlas making and genetic tools in brain science are about analyzing cell types, knowing where they are in the brain, learning what the cells do, how they interact with other cells, and how their activities lead to complex behavior such as memory. Part of the science undertaking is knowing which genes cells express where. Genes tune all sorts of things in the body and the brain too. Genes might be turned off for a while, then be on and highly expressed. They might have low levels of expression or be silenced for some phases. Expressions can shift. Knowing which genes are expressed where is at the core of spatial transcriptomics. Hong Kui Zheng explains how spatial transcriptomics matters in brain development. So spatial transcriptomics uh, is also critical for understanding development uh, because during development, uh, the number of cells, uh, not only the number of cells is, is increasing, right? Uh, and the regions um, are growing, but also there, are, there is migration of cells, all kinds of cell types happening. And, the, and uh, the cells migrating, they follow specific trajectories. Um, um, very often the cells migrate a very long distance from where they uh, are born, to their final location. So um, the, the, the state of the cells in development uh, is often associated with the position of the cell during that path. Um, yeah, it's very, uh, and if you just uh, you know, dissociate the tissue and profile individual cells without a spatial context, you would lose all that information. There's a lot of migration happening. Think about your whole brain or your body comes from a single cell. And then there are all these new cells born and they are, they are all organized in this beautiful structure. Cells are moving during development all the time. So you trace their past, then you understand you know, the, the relationship across time. Spatial transcriptomics can yield plenty of valuable information about the brain. For Hong Kui Zhang, it started nearly 20 years ago. And over time, it's become clear it's hard to distinguish cell types. For me, it started with the Allen Brain Atlas. Yeah, Allen Brain Atlas started in 2003. It's a in situ expression profiling of all the genes in a mouse genome, about 20, 25,000 genes in a mouse genome. It looks at the um, anatomical spatial expression patterns, one gene at a time. It's a reference database that has been widely used, extremely useful, and people have learned a lot about cells um, that express individual genes. But over the years, and we, we have been using that atlas to try and understand the different types of cells in the brain, how many types uh, there are. However, uh, well, along with that, you know, there are also additional techniques developed, like double fluorescent in situ hybridization, triple fluorescent in situ hybridization, because we want to look at co-expression of genes. Very often, one gene is not sufficient to identify a cell type, right? So um, we were acutely aware that knowing just one gene, two genes, or even three, the combination of three genes is not sufficient to identify a cell or a cell type. 
So single cell transcriptomics um, uh, technique, you know, came in several years ago. It really changed the field, revolutionized the field because you can look at the expression of thousands of genes in the same cell at the same time. And that's just tremendously powerful. Um, so that has already changed the field dramatically. And now we get into spatial transcriptomics with the different techniques that also allow you to look at maybe not a thousands of genes yet, but you know, it depends on the type of uh, method that we're talking about, but it's the same idea that, uh, um, but go even beyond the single cell RNA-seq kind of technique. It allows you to look at uh, several genes, well, many genes in the same cell and in a spatially localized region, you know, at the same time. Um, it just, yeah, very powerful in identifying the identities of the cells and also exactly where they are located and what cells are near that cells. Yeah, spatial organization of the cell types. Now we can measure not one gene at a time, but you measure thousands of genes at a time, maybe not in the spatial transcriptomics context yet, but in single cell transcriptomics, you measure thousands of genes at a time and you measure their levels. And you actually notice that definitely quantitative differences are highly prevalent. Actually, they're more than a rule, you know, a, a rule than an exception, meaning black and white frequently does not exist. You actually have multiple genes that are expressed at multiple different levels, and together, they make a cell what it is. Together, the expressed genes make a cell what it is. When scientists analyze which genes are expressed in a tissue, they analyze the messenger RNA, which is actually a tiny fraction of the RNA in cells, but a really important one. And as you already heard, they would rather not have all the genes all blended together into a smoothie. They would rather like to see where the individual genes are expressed and get that fruit tarty view. So I think a couple of things matter. How many genes do you want to detect at a time? How highly are these genes expressed? Um, what is the how accurately you want them quantified. Do you really want to count molecules or you're okay with just counting overall signal? Um, do you really, can you image in thin sections versus thick sections? Um, do you need to image in a volume or you're fine with sectioning your tissue very thinly? Um, so I think those are the main things Did I, did I maybe forget anything, Hunkui? I think, um, yeah. In addition to that, there is also: do you want to do you want to have high resolution, high cellular resolution, but lo only local, looking at a local region, or do you want a overall survey across a large area, uh, part of the brain, but you can tolerate um, resolution? You know, you don't have to have single cell level resolution some kind of a local, uh, you know, resolution is sufficient. In a lab, in a, in a former case, you would use Murphish type of hybridization based approach. In the latter case, you can use, yeah, 10X Vision, that kind of um, spatial transcriptomics. You can look at many, and it's very fast. You can look at many, many cells from the same section simultaneously. But of course the sensitivity, you sacrifice sensitivity 
you sacrifice a single cell resolution, but, but it's very, you know, it's high throughput. With spatial transcriptomics, many see its starting point with in situ hybridization that scientists applied to find a particular bit of DNA or RNA and get its location. Single molecule fluorescence in situ hybridization gives an enhanced signal for localizing a molecule such as an RNA. Single molecule fish um, is the beginning uh, where you can use um, multiple oligos to bind to the same molecule and use that to, um, to um, enhance the signal um, of the detection so that you can see, yeah, very low level, single molecule. You can image single molecules from a tissue section. Okay. I guess that's, that's, at least that's the beginning of the um, uh, hybridization-based approach. Many spatial transcriptomic methods can involve sequencing, and those can be divvied up in different ways. Here's how Hongkui Zheng classifies them. For me, it's really just three main approaches. One is uh, in situ hybridization, like uh, Murfish, uh, multiplexed in situ hybridization. The second is in situ sequencing. And then the third one is in situ capturing, followed by um, bulk uh, sequencing. Right, so that's, that's like the, the TENX VCM kind of approach. So in situ capturing, the in situ sequencing, and the multiplex fish. Um, all of those technologies currently follow single cell RNA uh, sequencing of isolated cells or nuclei because the single cell RNA sequencing from isolated cells or nuclei still give you the highest uh, sensitivity in terms of detecting uh, the number of genes expressed and things like that. And we use spatial transcriptomics, either of those three approaches, to do subsequent studies uh, to look at where uh, the cell types are distributed um, in, in the tissue. One aspect that might be surprising to some is that spatial transcriptomics involves gene expression and that the methods currently involve sequencing technology. But maybe, maybe, single-cell RNA sequencing is no longer needed to get the expression data in spatial transcriptomics. Hong Kuizeng explains. What we want to see, ideally, uh, one day, is that we can completely get rid of single-cell RNA sequencing. We can just do, uh, yeah, do it once. It has sufficient sensitivity and a resolution and the ability of detecting thousands of genes, then you can just take a tissue and section and you just, just do a spatial transcriptomics. You got all the information. You don't have to do two steps. You just, you just do it once. And then when you take, let's say, a human biopsy tissue or you know, whatever you want to do, you can just, um, you can just look everything, you know, and do it once, get all the information, You'll be much more efficient, and um, you got both spatial information and the quantitative gene expression information at the same time. Although this might sound to some ears as if this is a development that is still quite far off into the future, Hong Kuizeng doesn't think it's that far off in the distance after all. Maybe it's happening pretty soon. You know, we, we count on those technology technologies like Xiaowei or companies like 10X Genomics to develop those technologies allow us to do that. 
One reason it matters to make things efficient with technology is that in plenty of instances, a lab is analyzing tissue and it's a mighty precious sample to analyze. It might, for example, be a sample of a child's brain after surgery for a brain tumor. There are samples like the unique, one-of-a-kind sample that can only be examined once. In cases such as these, spatial transcriptomics has much to tell basic researchers and clinicians who want to know more about a child's brain tumor. Yeah, there is huge diagnostic potential. Yeah. I think diagnostic, not only definition of cell types in healthy brain, yeah. but diagnostics is going to be revolutionized by single cell genomics techniques. It's yeah. pretty clear it's there. Just imagine, you know, now we measure, what do you measure? You measure something that's in your blood, some protein, something. Yeah. Now you imagine, even on a, on a tissue that's not spatially organized, you can sequence uh, RNA in all those cells. And imagine in a tissue that's organized, like a tumor, solid tumor, imagine you just image all the genes and their expression in that tumor. You know the spatial organization and you know what's special or different about these tumor cells in this case versus that other case. And you might spot that, you know, very rare tumor precursor cells, you know, things like that. That's what you want to find. These rare cells might be exactly where a tumor originated. Knowing this cell might be crucial to treating a patient and it might deliver to basic researchers an important clue about this tumor type and cancer. There are many methods labs can use to locate where genes are expressed to get spatially resolved transcriptomic data. Bozilka Tasik and Hong Kuizeng talk a little about what researchers need to consider when they decide what to use when. They will mention a few approaches that you will hear more about in other episodes in this podcast series. There's Murfish, for example, from the lab of Zhao Wei Zhuang at Harvard University, and 10x genomics instrument called Visium, based on technology from multiple labs in Sweden. Episode one of this podcast series was with some of those developers. Let's say you're interested in a particular cell type and you want to detect it robustly. The question is, how different is it from other cell types? How frequently it is present in the tissue? So both of those things um, influence uh, how you will design your experiment. Um, If a cell type is very distinct and very abundant, you actually may not need spatial transcriptomics at all. You just need almost uh, old-fashioned Allen Brain Atlas type of uh, approach. But that's rare. A single gene defining a cell type is rare. Now, if we want to define finer and finer cell types that depend, whose definition depends on more genes, we need to multiplex the genes. And we also want to make sure we can distinguish that cell type from, let's say, related cell type. Sometimes. Sometimes we may want to define a class or examine a class, a group of cell types that are related. So you have to define where you want in resolution to be? Do you care about defining the finest divisions in the taxonomy, the finest cell types? Or you just wanna look at a class, like for example, parobumin interneuron class. Based on that, you design the set of genes you will look at. And the last thing is also, do you want cellular resolution? This is going back to what Hongkui mentioned before. Do you really need to detect individual cells? Or you care about 
how abundant is a particular cell type in this area and is it in a particular area if I have subcellular resolution? That's Visium, for example. I think the best thing, what everybody dreams about is, I just want to measure all genes in all cells with cellular resolution. I would, everybody would love to do that if it were cheap and easily accessible. <laughs> but then there are many times where you just don't need to go that deep. And actually, currently, we don't have a method that can measure all genes in every single cell, their expression, at the cellular resolution. We have MRFish, which can measure a couple of hundred very accurately, and we can infer other genes, their expression based on, for example, a combination of single cell transcriptomics with spatial uh, data, with MRFish data. On the other hand, sometimes I just wanna look at three genes because these three genes would already tell me the difference between the three major classes, let's say, of interneurons in the cortex. So I don't need to do spatial transcriptomics, but I know which genes I'm gonna probe. So that's the key thing, discovery, we still still do discovery mostly at the level of single cell RNA-seq on dissociated cells. I, I think Zhao Wei would maybe slightly disagree with that because she does do clustering. Her lab has pioneered clustering, so de novo cell type discovery on MRFish data, but you still need to know which genes you're going to probe. You still have to have the information which genes I'm going to choose to have the best possible coverage of the landscape of cell types. And you have to base it on something. You base it on single-cell RNA-seq. An overarching dream is measuring a single-cell resolution. Here's Basilka Tasik. When I was in grad school, I was dreaming of this. I want to measure all the genes in single cells. Yeah. And so many single cells. And people were pioneering it even then. I mean, they're, they're early single-cell transcriptomics yeah. mm-hmm. um, type of work and not to mention in spatial context. I mean, this was a dream for for a very, very, very long time. The spatial dream has been a while in the making. And now that it's a reality, people need to craft their experiments with a view to, for example, what kind of resolution they need. One issue with spatial analysis and the methods, and this is not unique to spatial analysis, labs are getting a lot of data. And it's not just transcriptomic data. We ourselves were not even aware how quickly we will be hitting the boundaries of what is standard to be analyzed. So just imagine you're measuring with single cell transcriptomics, but similarly with spatial transcriptomics. You're measuring each cell and hundreds or thousands of properties for each one of that cell. That means, let's say in single transcriptomics, we'll have millions of cells measured for 40,000 genes. In spatial transcriptomics, you will have, maybe once we have the whole brain, all the cells in the brain measured for 250 genes. Just the scale of the data becomes, and these so-called data matrices become unmanageable. So what we have done is, We are developing some software internally. We try to repurpose and adopt other people's software. But in fact, we have realized we actually have to work with people who work with large data (laughs) that has nothing to do with, with biology. They just work with managing and accessing and sampling large scale data matrices. We have to work with people who don't deal with biology, but we're now faced with this huge amounts of data and how do you manage it First, how do you put it in one place? And then how do you process it? 
So what we do is we do all sorts of things, internally developed software, collaborations, adaptations of other people's software, and working with people who just work with large-scale data, not biological data. Data mountains bring on all kinds of challenges, just their sheer size and the fact that the data come together from many different methods. When you deal with data, um, it's I think the first problem is the size of the data, right? The, the amount of data, the size of data just increases dramatically, very, very quickly, because the technologies allow you to collect many data rapidly. But the second issue and problem is as you said, there are now multi-model data, many different types of data. And um, when you deal with many different types of data, you, you have to find a way to be able to integrate them together. Even the same type of data collected in different ways are somewhat slightly different. So you need to correct batch effect, uh, then the donor effect, you know, all these things. Find ways to normalize the data. Um, that are collected, same type of data, but collected in different ways. So that's one way of uh, integration. And the next integration is, as you said, uh, there are uh, sequencing data sets, there are imaging data sets, there are physiology data sets. And how do you combine them together? Uh, integrate them together to for, perform joint clustering analysis, for example, or look at a cross-correlation across different data sets. So both of those types of problems involve, you know, computational uh, techniques, math, um, mathematicians. Um, now, nowadays, a lot of uh, machine learning, you know, AI-based approaches are um, very powerful in, in integrating data together as well. As part of this integration, scientists are developing new ways of looking and analyzing their data. Because when it comes to data integration, you can't just throw data together and make a data smoothie. You, you tweak, you tweak, you play with data, you play with different parameters. Uh, you develop new equations, algorithms that are specifically suited for your problem. It is really essential for biologists to work closely with bioinformaticians and mathematicians for progress in this area to be made. And as Hongkui mentioned, not only because we have large sets of data, but the dimensionality of, of the data is increasing and the modalities, the types of data we collect for, sometimes for the same exact cell, we can collect three different types of data. Within spatial transcriptomics, there are many ways to capture data about where genes are being expressed. This multitude of methods is true in fields that are rapidly evolving. And there is still a lot of room for improved approaches because for Hong Kuizang, Bosil Katasik, and many of their colleagues in neuroscience, the brain's complexity is an intense challenge. It's, it's, it's happening right now. It's a very active uh, field, as you have seen. There are so many different techniques uh, that have been developed um, really um, open up many opportunities for us to uh, look at different things and think about new experiments that we can do. But um, even with that, despite of that, the techniques are um, not, in many cases, they are not uh, perfect yet. And we want, we want more and better. <laughs> there are many questions in our mind that we just said, you know, we can scale up that technique, you know, looking at not just hundreds of genes in a cell, maybe thousands of genes in a cell, and, uh, you know, being able to, uh, uh, yeah, measure things much more efficiently. 
For some of the techniques in spatial transcriptomics, scientists can turn to a commercialized instrument. There are many companies in this space, including 10x Genomics, Nanostring, BGI, and other companies, and new ones are emerging. Commercialization does help. Commercialization does help. Having some of these, because academia, I mean, you develop methods and you use them, but in fact, you make them widely available. Commercialization sometimes is really crucial for next-generation sequencing, for single-cell transcriptomics. Without the next-generation sequencing, this revolution in single-cell transcriptomics wouldn't happen. And I think I'm very much looking forward to commercial solution for spatial transcriptomics that will work at the single-cell level. Instead of sequencing RNA that I isolated from individual cells, can you just sequence things directly or image them on a piece of tissue and give me back the data? Many, many of the kind of work that we do, uh, we're doing it for the first time. When you do something for the first time, it's always difficult and expensive. However, once you are able to do it, and then you develop a technology that allows you to do it repeatedly uh, many times, that's, that's, when, that's where the applications uh, will, will, will take place. For now, spatial transcriptomic analysis is not routine. Basilka Tasik likes to imagine a day when that routine sets in. Yeah, I think it will become as standard as Sanger sequencing. I think it will be as standard as Sanger sequencing. You will take a piece of your tissue and you will send it out at some point and you will get a spatial transcriptomic image of your tissue with cellular resolution or not, depending on how much you pay <laughs> or which technique you choose. I can see it as becoming a, a standard thing that even in papers, oh, you didn't measure all the genes, why not? Today and in the future, not every lab will need to know the gene expression in every single cell in their sample. I mean, and still for many, many purposes, that is also still infinitely useful. If you can measure 100 or 200 genes, sometimes even just four or five or six is really useful. But I think... One can imagine that one day you won't be doing single cell RNA sequencing but dissociating cells at all. You will just do spatial transcriptomics directly. Spatial transcriptomics and other techniques will help with atlas building of the brain. At the Allen Institute, researchers are building atlases of the brain to know and show which cell types are where. The idea with such atlases is to give labs around the world the opportunity to compare their results with these atlases. A major thing really is what we call cell type annotation or cell type mapping. How do you define within your sample, what are the cell types and can you infer what they are based on somebody else's data? And in fact, this is, this is really something that uh, many, many people are thinking about. Standards for defining cell types, standards for atlases of cell types with cell type cards, and ways to map your cells that you have sequenced, either in your lab or through a service, to that standardized taxonomy of cell types so that you can say, this tumor has this much glial, glioblastoma cells versus this tumor has medulloblastoma uh, cells. Uh, the proportion of different cell types in their spatial organization based on comparison to a standard set, like a periodic system of cell types. We're very much looking into building a, I mean, a periodic system of cell types in the brain. 
how is it exactly going to look like? Of course, it's not going to be periodic. <laughs> they would like it to be. It's probably going to be quite complicated, but we would like to define every cell type, provide it to the community as a resource, and enable the community to map their cell types or their cells to our standardized cells. And also, I should mention, it's not only us. It's not only the Allen Institute. We're part of large consortia. BICCM. BICCM. Brain Initiative Cell Census Network in Hongkui is one of the main leaders there. In neuroscience, there are still plenty of disagreements between scientists about which regions and subregions of the brain are responsible for what. Yeah. (laughs) Just because we're still working on the cartography. Once the cartography is complete, then I don't think there will be a lot of disagreements. But then there will be the questions of function. Find the cell types. What do they do? How did you perturb this one or that one? How specifically did you perturb cell type A or B? How did you measure the effect? There will always be disagreements in science, but I think with time and with a lot of data collected, they all settle. And then there are disagreements about spatial data itself. They occur because people use somewhat different methods because execution of these methods and obtaining these data is difficult. It's not because people really want to disagree, but because it's really hard to get these data and then to interpret them in a joint way, it's also hard. So that's one of the reasons why I'm a huge fan (laughs) of common coordinate system, for example, for the mouse brain, where you put everything in the same space. That's That's another reason why I like transcriptomics, because you measure the same genes. You can really correlate data from lab to lab. You can integrate it. Science so far has been done frequently in a way that you create data and you publish your paper and it's a 2D image in a publication and nobody else can use it ever again for anything. (laughs) At the Allen Institute for Brain Science, the scientists want to provide atlases and a way to enable better ways to standardize data and make it easier to use data and compare it. And yes, there will still be papers in the future, Basilka Tasik and Hongkui Zeng explain. I mean, we'll still have publications, but I think public data deposition in a standardized format such that other people can use and reuse those data, compare it to their own, it's essential. And that's where uh, genomics has been moving in that direction for a long time. I think image analysis is also moving in that uh, direction. Hongkui's, for example, led a connectivity atlas at the Allen Institute where all the experiments were placed in this one common coordinate framework, Allen Institute Common Coordinate Framework, which is basically a standard brain for the mouse. So you don't present data one at a time. You present them all in this one common framework. And then you provide that common framework for everybody else in the world to be able to use it. This kind of atlas needs to be built and labeled. A 3D map Mm -hmm. uh, of a mouse brain with areas annotated and labeled with names. um, Yeah, so it's a a reference 3D space. So then everybody can register, map their own data into the common 3D space to allow comparison, you know, objective comparison. These activities of cataloging are about what is here and found. As it turns out, atlas building involves new discoveries too. 
I mean, we have it. We have everything has to be versioned because also now as we're sequencing RNAs in these individual cells, we're finding new mRNA isoforms. That means we're also finding new genes that haven't been seen. So that's why I keep saying conquest at 20,000. That's roughly the number of genes in the mouse genome, but it's probably maybe 50. Mostly, uh, yeah, mostly uh, coding, 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 coding genes. If you count a lot of the new RNA species that have been identified, non-coding RNAs, then there's a lot more. Now that you've heard a bit about various methods in spatial transcriptomics, let me reshare the comments of Basilka Tasik and Hong Kuizeng about smoothies, fruit salad, and fruit tarts. Fruit salad and smoothie, yeah. And then fruit tart is spatial transcriptomics. Smoothie, <laughs> bulk RNA seek. Okay, you know, passe. Together. Yeah. Then you have a, a fruit salad, you have dissociated all the cells. You, you're profiling them, but you have lost where their context. You have a context based on the piece of tissue that you dissected. And then there is the fruit tart. You know exactly where each piece of fruit is and what is the relationship of each piece of fruit to the other. That was Conversations with Scientists. Today's episode was with Dr. Hongkui Zeng and Dr. Basilka Tasik from the Allen Institute for Brain Science. And I just wanted to add, because there's confusion about these things sometimes, these scientists and their institution did not pay to be in this podcast. This is independent journalism produced by me in my living room. I'm Vivian Marks. Thanks for listening. 